Welcome to the Terry Podcast, Tales from Near and Far, read to you by Pratham Data. A Child's History of England, by Charles Dickens, read to you by Pratham Data. Chapter 14, Part 1. England under King John, called Lackland. Two and thirty years of age, John became King of England. His pretty little nephew Arthur had the best claim to the throne, but John seized the treasure and made fine promises to the nobility and got himself crowned at Westminster within a few weeks after his brother Richard's death. I doubt whether the crown could possibly have put upon the head of a meaner coward or a more detestable villain if England had been searched from end to end to find him out. The French king, Philip, refused to acknowledge the right of John to this new dignity and declared in favour of Arthur. You must not suppose that he had any generosity of feeling for the fatherless boy. It merely suited his ambitious schemes to oppose the King of England. So John and the French King went to war about Arthur. He was a handsome boy at that time, only 12 years old. He was not born when his father, Geoffrey, had his brains trampled out of the tournament and, besides the misfortune of never having known a father's guidance and protection, he had the additional misfortune to have a foolish mother, Constance by name, lately married to her third husband. She took Arthur upon John's accession to the French king, who pretended to be very much his friend and who made him a knight, and promised him his daughter in marriage, but who cared so little about him in reality, that finding it his interest to make peace with King John for a time, he did so without the least consideration for the poor little prince and heartlessly sacrificed all his interests. Young Arthur, for two years afterwards, lived quietly. And in the course of that time, his mother died. But the French king, then finding it his interest to quarrel with King John again, again made Arthur his pretense and invited the orphan boy to court. You know you're right, prince, said the French king, and you would like to be king. Is that not so? Truly, said Prince Arthur, I should greatly like to be a king. Then, said Philip, you shall have two hundred gentlemen who are knights of mine, and with them you shall go to win back the provinces belonging to you, of which your uncle, the usurping King of England, has taken possession. I myself, meanwhile, will head a force against him in Normandy. Poor Arthur was so flattered and so grateful that he signed a treaty with a crafty French king, agreeing to consider him his superior lord, and that the French king should keep for himself whatever he could take from King John. Now King John was so bad in all ways, and King Philip was so perfidious 
that Arthur, between the two, might as well have been a lamb between a fox and a wolf. But, being so young, he was ardent and flushed with hope, and when the people of Brittany, which was his inheritance, sent him 500 more knights and 5,000 foot soldiers, he believed his fortune was made. The people of Brittany had been fond of him from his birth and had requested that he might be called Arthur in remembrance of the dimly famous English Arthur of whom I told you early in the book, whom they believed to have been the brave friend and companion of an old king of their own. They had tales amongst them about a prophet called Merlin of the same old time who had foretold that their own king should be restored to them after hundreds of years, and they believed that the prophecy would be fulfilled in Arthur. That the time would come when he would rule them with a crown of Brittany upon his head, and when neither king of France nor king of England would have any power over them. When Arthur found himself riding in a glittering suit of armour on a richly caparisoned horse at the head of the train of knights and soldiers, he began to believe this too, and to consider old Merlin a very superior prophet. He did not know. How could he, being so innocent and inexperienced, that his little army was a mere nothing against the power of the King of England. The French King knew it, but the poor boy's fate was little to him, so that the King of England was worried and distressed. Therefore, King Philip went his way into Normandy, and Prince Arthur went his way to it, Mirbeau, a French town near Poitiers, both very well pleased. Prince Arthur went to attack the town of Mirabal. Because his grandmother Eleanor, who has so often made her appearance in this history and who had always been his mother's enemy, was living there, and because his knight said, Prince, if you can take her prisoner, you will be able to bring the king your uncle to terms. But she was not to be easily taken. She was old enough by this time, 80, but she was as full of stratagem as she was full of years and wickedness. Receiving intelligence of young Arthur's approach, she shut herself up in a high tower and encouraged her soldiers to defend it like men. Prince Arthur, with his little army, besieged the high tower. King John, hearing how matters stood, came up to the rescue with his army. So here was a strange family party. The boy prince besieging his grandmother and his uncle besieging him. This position of affairs did not last long. One summer night, King John, by treachery, got his men into town surprised Prince Arthur's force, took 200 of his knights and seized the prince himself in his bed. The knights were put in heavy irons and driven away in open carts drawn by bullocks to various dungeons where they were most inhumanly treated and where some of them were starved to death.
Prince Arthur was sent to the castle of Falaise. One day, when he was in prison at that castle, mournfully thinking it's strange that one so young should be in so much trouble and looking out of the small window in the deep dark wall at that summer sky and the birds the door was softly opened and he saw his uncle the king standing in the shadow of the archway looking very grim Arthur, said the king with his wicked eyes more on the stone flow than on his nephew. Will you not trust to the gentleness, the friendship and the truthfulness of your loving uncle? I will tell my loving uncle that, replied the boy, when he does me right. Let him restore to me my kingdom of England and then come to me and ask the question. The king looked at him and went out. Keep that boy close prisoner, said he to the warden of the castle. Then the king took secret counsel with the worst of his nobles on how the prince was to be got rid of. Some said, put out his eyes and keep him in prison, as Robert of Normandy was kept. Others said, have him stabbed. Others, have him hanged. Others, have him poisoned. King John, feeling that in any case, whatever was done afterwards, it would be a satisfaction to his mind to have those handsome eyes burnt out that had looked at him so proudly while his own royal eyes were blinking at the stone flow, sent certain ruffians to Falaise to blind the boy with red hot irons. But Arthur so pathetically entreated them and shed such piteous tears and so appealed to Hubert de Bourg of Berg, the warden of the castle, who had a love for him and was an honourable tender man, that Hubert could not bear it. To his eternal honour, he prevented the torture from being performed and at his own risk sent the savages away. The chafed and disappointed king bethought himself of the stabbing suggestion next, and with his shuffling manner and his cruel face, proposed it to one William de Bray. I am a gentleman and not an executioner, said William de Bray, and left the presence with disdain. But it was not difficult for a king to hire a murderer in those days. King John found one for his money and sent him down to the castle of Falaise. On what errand dost thou come? said Hubert to this fellow. To dispatch young Arthur, he returned. Go back to him who sent thee, answered Hubert, and say that I will do it. King John very well knowing that Hubert would never do it, but that he courageously sent this reply to save the prince or gain time, dispatched messengers to convey the young prisoner to the castle of Rouen. Arthur was soon forced from the good Hubert, 
of whom he had never stood in greater need than then, carried away by night and lodged in his new prison, where, through his grated window, he could hear the deep waters of the river Seine rippling against the stone wall below. One dark night, as he lay sleeping, dreaming perhaps of rescue by those unfortunate gentlemen who were obscurely suffering and dying in his cause, he was roused and bidden by his jailer to come down the staircase to the foot of the tower. He hurriedly dressed himself and obeyed. When they came to the bottom of the winding stairs and the night air from the river blew upon their faces, the jailer trod upon his torch and put it out. Then Arthur, in the darkness, was hurriedly drawn into a solitary boat. And in that boat, he found his uncle and one other man. He knelt to them and prayed them not to murder him. Deaf to his entreaties, they stabbed him and sunk his body in the river with heavy stones. When the spring morning broke, the tower door was closed, the boat was gone, the river sparkled on its way, and never more was any trace of the poor boy beheld by mortal eyes. The news of this atrocious murder being spread in England awakened a hatred of the king, already odious for many of his vices and for his having stolen away and married a noble lady while his own wife was living, that never slept again through his whole reign. In Brittany, the indignation was intense. Arthur's own sister, Eleanor, was in the power of John and shut up in a convent in Bristol, and his half-sister Alice was in Brittany. The people chose her and the murdered prince's father-in-law, the last husband of Constance, to represent them, and carry their fiery complaints to King Philip. King Philip summoned King John, as the holder of territory in France, to come before him and defend himself. King John refusing to appear, King Philip declared him false, perjured and guilty, and again made war. In a little time, at conquering the greater part of his French territory, King Philip deprived him of one-third of his dominions. And, through all the fighting that took place, King John was always found either to be eating and drinking like a gluttonous fool when the danger was at distance or to be running away like a beaten cur when it was near. You might suppose that when he was losing his dominions at this rate and when his own nobles cared so little for him or his cause that they plainly refused to follow his banner out of England, he had enemies enough. But he had made another enemy of the Pope, which he did in this way. The Archbishop of Canterbury dying, and the junior monks of that place wishing to get the start of the senior monks in the appointment of his successor, met together at midnight, secretly elected a certain Reginald, and sent him off to Rome to get the Pope's approval. 
The senior monks and the king soon finding this out and being very angry about it, the junior monks gave way and all the monks together elected the Bishop of Norwich, who was the king's favourite. The Pope, hearing the whole story, declared that no other election should do for him and that he elected Stephen Langton. The monks submitting to the Pope, the king turned them all out bodily and banished them as traitors. The Pope sent three bishops to the king to threaten him with an interdict. The king told the bishops that if any interdict were laid upon his kingdom, he would tear out the eyes and cut off the noses of all the monks he could lay hold of and send them over to Rome in that undecorated state as a present for their master. The bishops, nevertheless, soon published the interdict and fled. After it had lasted a year, the Pope proceeded to his next step, which was excommunication. King John was declared excommunicated with all the usual ceremonies. The King was so incensed at this and was made so desperate by the disaffection of his barons and the hatred of his people that it is said he even privately sent ambassadors to the Turks in Spain offering to renounce his religion and hold his kingdom off them if they would help him. It is related that the ambassadors were admitted to the presence of the Turkish emir through long lines of Moorish guards and that they found the emir with his eyes seriously fixed on the pages of a large book from which he never once looked up that they gave him a letter from the king containing his proposals and were gravely dismissed. That presented the emir, sent for one of them and conjured him by his faith in his religion to say what kinds of man the king of England truly was. That the ambassador, thus pressed, replied that the king of England was a false tyrant against whom his own subjects would soon rise, and that this was quiet enough for the Emir. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please comment and please like it and subscribe. Please do let me know if there are certain tales from whichever part of the world you might be in that you would like me to read. Thank you.